Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be recommending some summer reads. And looking at firing books. Hello there, I'm Heather Adams and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian Ashton and myself. Thank you for joining us. First of all, thank you very much for Deborah for a fabulous My Life, My Way today. And good morning, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Heather. And how are you? Yes, <laughs> great. Yes, got a little bit of a tickle in my mm. throat at the moment, but uh, fighting fit. Mm. I've just come back from holiday, so uh, Lovely. full of the joys of summer. Um, Every week on Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And as always, we have got a fun-filled hour designed for you this week. Yes, indeed. And with summer holidays just around the corner, we will be delving into some interesting books to suggest for your summer reading. Yes, and it'll be a fiery time later on in the studio as we'll be looking at fire in books. But you'll be all right because the studio is air-conditioned, isn't it? It, so? it is indeed, yes. I'm glorifying <laughs> under the air-conditioning unit. Unfortunately, it's not warm enough outside to make a difference. Oh, right. <laughs> one day. <laughs> And to start the show, as always, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Yes, indeed. So let's uh, kick off the programme with that quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news this past week. Now, the one that I'm starting off with is a little bit sad, um, and it's some sad and disappointing news for the world of uh, literary prizes. And the Costa Book Awards, um, Heather, which we talked about a few weeks ago, has been cancelled after 50 years of celebrating the very best of British um, authors. And it's it's such a shame. The Costa Awards um, was seen as the very best award for celebrating really what was considered the enjoyable books. Yes, um, I think it was yeah. the accessible books, wasn't it? The page yeah. turners of it the was, world. Yes. Yes. And it, yeah, it was, yes. Yeah, it was. It was very much that. And it was also the only uh, major literary um, prize uh, that was for authors based in the UK and Ireland. Now, it was established in 1971 as the Whitbread Book Awards, as you might remember. Then it was sponsored by Costa Coffee from 2006. Uh, the prize was worth £30,000 and it celebrated accessible works uh, and unlike the Booker Prize um, more recently it's not open to international authors so it was purely um, uh, well it was interestingly it was open to uh, it could be international authors but they had to be resident in either Britain or Ireland right. um, within the three years um, of, of the prize. So it was oh, a bit like getting yeah. picked for a national um, rugby team or something. Exactly <laughs> that's right yes you didn't have to be you didn't have to come from uh, Bristol or yeah. Bath or wherever anyway but the the decision about the wards um, appears to have been taken quite unexpectedly and the organisers who are the British uh, which is the Booksell Association was not even informed of the decision before the announcement was made nor was there any indication that the last awards which was celebrated in February 2021 were to be the last 
Now, the awards were important as uh, as part in celebrating not only the best-selling um, uh, authors, but also new voices that were coming to the fore with a range of different themes. Now, the only thing is, Heather, I really hope that another company will pick up the mantle uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, and I did think that, can I say this, that Costa Coffee probably didn't use the prize in every way it should because in every bookshop it would be great or every coffee shop rather coffee it'd shop, been great exactly, yes. to have picked up one of the yes. uh, one of the nom- shortlisted nominations yes. to read or possibly having Costa Coffees in libraries to celebrate a link yep. I did think there's an opportunity yeah. so it, possibly there's another coffee company out there can show Costa what yes, it's all about yes, could, could be um but then or, or, or something maybe um a little more um um Expansive. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I always thought, I thought it was a little bit of the cost of coffee. And the only reason why it was cost of coffee that took it over was it was a division of Whitbread. Whitbread, um, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. you mean so? Well, I think Costa's a great a great brand. Other right. coffee shops are available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've got another coronation story for you. So I know we're uh, still. Um, after the platinum jubilee of, of our queen. But this one is George V. And letters by Thomas Hardy, no less, uh, have been found, which includes one that tells how he kept far from the mudding crowd during the coronation of George V. Uh, and these letters are to be sold in auction. And the letters reflect the novelist's anti-establishment reputation and are found amongst a collection of his first editions. Hardy, of course, is the author of such classics such as Tess of the Durbfields and Far From the Madding Crowd and used his hometown of Dorchester as a setting for many of his books. But despite coming from humble origins and with a strong tie to the country, he used to rent his house in London, he used to rent a house out in London every summer as he was desperate to be part of London society and attend events and balls during the season with his wife Emma. That would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? Yes. But he obviously decided to stay away from what he called the Coronation Circus and stay in his private members club. Now, amongst the letters that were found includes one to a friend who was staying in his house whilst he was in London, giving strict instructions about locking the door to his study, where he wrote Jude the Obscure and the Mayor of Casterbridge. Now, personal inscriptions and letters by Hardy are rare, and the first editions which we auctioned off range in value between 3000 to 10000 each. Now, I always think Hardy, when I think of him, I think of him as sort of like a... Based in the Victorian age, and I haven't mm. mentioned this before, <clears throat> excuse me, but he would actually drive to the cinema to see his films, which is really so amazing. So the first one that was filmed was Tess of the Durbervilles in 1913 by the forerunner of what is now Paramount Pictures. Oh, um, yeah, and in fact, Tess, just like cinema houses nowadays, remake great films. Mm. Well, so in 1924... Another company remade Tess of the Durbervilles. And this time the cinema audience could choose the ending. So oh, they, could, right. they could decide whether she is hanged at the end or whether she's reprieved. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, well, there's a, um, on my little tidbit here, there's a bit of a to-do over the real story behind Dr. Shivago, um, because uh, the, the, his, uh, his great-niece, uh, Boris Pasternak's great-niece, is claiming the equivalent of identity theft after reading another author's books. Now, it appears that the great-niece, Anna Pasternak, wrote a non-fiction book um, called Lara, The Untold Love Story and the Inspiration for Dr. Shivago, which was published in, in 2016. And it tells this true story, the true love story between Pasternak and uh, a lady called Olga Ivinskaya, um, who inspired um, Pasternak to create the character Lara Antipova, uh, who was played by Julie Christie in the 1965 film. Now, three years after Anna's book was published, an American author, interesting by the name of Lara Prescott, used Anna's nonfiction book as the inspiration for her fictionalised tale of how the CIA smuggled copies of Dr. Zhivago into the USSR after the book was banned by the communist regime in 1957. Now, it might be that the two million advance that Prescott was paid that might have stuck in Anna Pasternak's craw, or it might be that Pasternak wasn't acknowledged in the book at all, or that it might be just the awful and terrible prose. (laughs) Anna Pasternak previously claimed that she opened the book at random and read a sex scene from with the phrase, we came together like crashing boulders that echoed across Moscow. (laughs) I think enough said on that. Absolutely. Now, the court case is scheduled for this summer, so we're going to have to wait and see what the outcome is. That reminds me, do you remember the book The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail? Yes. Which was a non-fiction book. And then was it sort of pinched by Dan Brown or something for... um... uh, For his, um, yes, for his... um, um, uh, what was his professor? What's his name? Oh, story? Da, da, yeah. The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci yeah. Code. Yeah, yeah. And yes. then the authors of the non-fiction book got really annoyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because of course, Dan Brown's was absolutely fabulously uh, successful. Rich. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, These things happen. Right. So there was a recent debate I want to tell you about by Intelligence Squared, which was about the essential question of our time. Now, it is a book show. So what is the essential question of the time? And it is the Battle of the Bears. The question Ah, to be addressed was which is the greatest, Winnie the Pooh or Paddington Bear? Ah. Who, who are you going to vote for? Oh, it's, a, it's a hard one, isn't it? it well, was, it is hard. The yeah. event was run by Sotheby's Jubilee Arts Festival, and it suggested that Paddington's gentleness and fashion sense made up for any chaos he caused, whilst it was the essence of goodness and friendship that was the prime focus for supporters of Winnie the Pooh. So it was Aunt Lucy versus Christopher Robin, Marmalade versus Honey, avoiding Mr. Curry or the Heffalumps, mm-hmm. all important elements of the two bears story. In the end, it was decided by a whisker and A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh won the day, as he has the greatest legacy being the only children's character who has invented a game, Pooh Sticks, which is played all around the world. Although probably Michael Bond's Paddington might not have won, but he did manage to have afternoon tea with the Queen, didn't he? Well, he did indeed, yes. I must admit he did. That was quite quite a triumph for Paddington. <laughs> it I was think, indeed, yeah. yes. But of course, Christopher Robin did go down to the uh, to see the change of the guard at the palace with Alice. <laughs> he did indeed. Is that Christopher Robin? Yes. Yes. 
it was indeed. Now, this one, I think this is great. Um, uh, this tip, the letters from um, f- um, French literary giants show that their minds might not always have been filled with lofty thoughts, literary thoughts or philosophical thoughts, but were more often than not occupied, like most, with the mundane matters. Mm-hmm. Now, for example, Charles, um, Charles Baudelaire, the poet, for example, was concerned about money and an awkward relationship with his mother. He wrote to her, although a mother, you know me imperfectly. <laughs> you could imagine many a person would say something similar to that. <laughs> I think so. And on the other hand, uh, Gustave uh, Flaubert, the novelist who wrote the Madame Bovary, uh, um, wrote Madame Bovary, amongst others, was, was appalled when his mistress wanted a child, writing about the idea as ghastly to my happiness. <laughs> <laughs> now, Victor Hugo, or Victor Hugo, um, he, he, to be fair, I think this was uh, not so mundane. Um, uh, he, of course, wrote uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, but he complained about women's rights, and I think this is really great, and I think it probably could say it's still true today, that they had made no, uh, not made a step forward since Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> now, the, the, these thoughts of some of the great French writers will be going up for sale in a Paris auction house near you soon. Ah, sounds great. Mm. Yes, on the week that Kate Bush is back at the top of the charts with her song Wuthering Heights, funding for a planning application on the windswept moors of Bronte country are being sought. Yorkshire Swimworks is planning a natural lido where real-life Cathy's can take a bracing dip at the top of the Yorkshire moors near the village of Horth, where Emily Bronte lived in her father's parsonage with her sisters Anne and Charlotte. The swimming spot could become a, a, a place of um, a place to go exploring the fabulous panoramic vistas of the landscape that inspired Emily Bronte's only novel, Wuthering Heights, published in 1847, a year before her death when she was just 30. That's amazing, Gosh. isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, outside planning permission has already been accepted for this idea. And the swimming pool itself is going to be a natural, wild swimming environment and won't be heated. But there is planned to be a poolside sauna nearby to warm up winter swimmers. But I think mm. that sounds a lovely idea. Yeah, very nice, very nice and bracing. But isn't it interesting, now that you mentioned, I didn't realise that Emily only wrote one novel. I, it's funny, yes. but the says you seem to think that there were a whole factory of novels coming out among the three of them. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, she Gosh. died of consumption or yeah. something, yeah. Yes. Well, finally, um, on this section, one of our listeners, Mrs Moko Kelly from London, has uh, written to me recommending a book that she's reading at the moment called Looking for Trouble by Virginia. Virginia Cowles, which she is thoroughly enjoying. Now, apparently, Virginia Cowles was a young American correspondent uh, who was sent out to report on the Spanish Civil War. Now, it was first published in 1941. However, Faber and Faber has recently reissued this wonderful memoir. 
Now, Moko also suggests that maybe we should consider the Spanish Civil War as one of our future themes, which I think is an excellent idea. Do you? Yeah, no, that's really good. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Mocha. That's really... Yeah, we, no, we thank appreciate, you. Yeah. appreciate you getting in touch. So, faithful band of listeners, do drop me a line if you have, like Moko, a book which you are currently reading and think we should too. And if you have any ideas for our weekly themes, also let us know. Um, you can contact me by email at julian at river.radio. Right. You are listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, in case you've forgotten, but and because books aren't just on the bestseller lists, and we really thank you for joining us today. We are. So coming up, we are on fire. Well, our recommended books are anyway, as we'll be recommending some great reads for you with a link to fire. But first, as the summer starts and holidays are on the horizon, no doubt we're all looking for ideal reading matter for the long summer holidays. And so we'll be recommending the hottest reads for our holidays. And this is something we'll be doing over the next few weeks, because uh, there's loads of suggestions out there from page turning thrillers and comic novels to non-fiction delights. So we'll be looking at some great recommendations over the next few weeks to give you plenty of summer reading inspiration in both new fiction and non-fiction. Indeed we will. And first off the block is fiction. And now we've mentioned uh, this author before. It's uh, Mick Heron, and he is on a playful form with uh, Bad Actors, which is the eighth outing of his ragtag gang of demoted MI5 operatives. And he is. It's re- they're really great yeah, books, I, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good. Well, there we are. There's a Heather, um, yeah. Heather's uh, handy hint there. Yeah. Go out and buy them. Yep. Um, now, the series of books um, are instant top bestseller. Uh, top 10 bestseller material and, and, and as Heather's endorsed that and we thoroughly recommend um, them if you do like espionage ser- thrillers. Now the Slough House series has been made into a major television series starring Gary Oldman. Um, in Bad Actors the Russians are still playing dirty so no change there, eh? Uh, and as a member of a, uh, of a think tank goes missing uh, it, it, in a skewering of political cynicism and incompetence that features a familiar eminence grise at the heart of government. It's fast, it's very funny, and it's furious. It's got a furious pace, and it's really worth the for the unimprovable line, never bring a spork to a knife fight. Now, that that is assuming you know what a spork is, of exactly. course. Exactly. And, exactly. <laughs> and I was going to say, for those of you like me, you didn't quite know what a spork is. Well, it's actually a fork and a spoon combined into one gadget, which is beloved by campers and hikers. And, and it's an extremely useful piece of kit for soldiers out on manoeuvres. I've got to say, I, want, I picked one up from Marks and Spencer's when I bought a salad there the other day. Right. <laughs> so they're relatively common. <laughs> well, you might have just looked at that, but that's a funny thing. I wonder what's it called. Well, there you are. You know what it's called. <laughs> Right, now I'm going to recommend, if you haven't read it yet, The Twyford Code by Janice Hallett, the queen of Trixie crime. Now, this has been so popular. It's it's fabulous. Now, her previous best-selling novel, The Appeal, was about a murder in a gossipy amateur dramatics community. And that was told through emails. And this um, tricksy but tender follow-up makes clever use of voice transcription. 
So our hero is ex-con Stephen, who's always loved codes and puzzles. And now he must solve the mystery of a missing childhood memory. It's a book by a famous Eni Blyton-esque children's author with his margins full of strange markings and annotations. And he was so fascinated with the book as a child that he took it to his English teacher, who was equally fascinated, and then disappeared during a class field trip as she was Mm. trying to resolve some of the uh, Mm. uh, the strange markings. So there are games within games in this ingenious (coughs) treasure hunt as Stephen realises that the Twyford Code has great power and he isn't the only one trying to stop it. It's uh, it's a fabulous book uh, and that will keep anyone intrigued. Mmm, sounds it, sounds it. Well, the the one I've got here to recommend is Here Goes Nothing by Steve Toltz. Now, um, Steve Toltz is a book of shortlisted author, um, and he's now written, which is really an interesting concept, a scathingly funny and affecting tale of life, death, love, and the questionable existence of God. Now, a cynical unbeliever finds himself uh, in the afterlife, um, uh, it was that dog, but <laughs> there was a dog. There actually, yes, it's obviously bring a dog to work day in the studio. Ah, right. <laughs> and I a see, couple right. of them weren't enjoying meeting. Ah, I, <laughs> I do apologise, there. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a couple of our literary critics, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so, okay, back to the story. So, um, so the poor old chap, he's up in the afterlife, and and he looks down on it, and he's actually. Um, he sees his murderer is cozying up to his widow and there's a pandemic that's uh, threatening uh, civilization looming ahead and it really is um, a sizzlingly good black comedy um, with full anarchic energy and it really is well worth it. It sounds brilliant actually. Yeah it does doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember reading a book where this guy goes up to heaven and um, he knew he was dead or he knew he was in heaven rather because every meal was um, was an English breakfast which i just thought was such a brilliant concept (laughs) excellent (laughs) right now my last um uh fiction pick for our summaries is wrong time wrong place sorry wrong place wrong time let's get that uh correct Mm -hmm. by gillian McAllister. So how can you prevent a murder that's already happened? So in this, it's a quite a page turning in this time loop thriller where a woman watches her beloved teenage son, who's happy, funny and innocent, commit a terrible crime, murdering a complete stranger in the street. So his mother now wakes up on each day further in the past, searching for clues to his motivation and a way to change the future. It's really, it's an intelligent puzzle full of good heart and good sense and it's unputboundable and spellbinding whodunit. It's a real page turner. Mm, it's interesting. It's almost like a bit like Groundhog Day in reverse, isn't it? Yes. Whereas Groundhog Day, uh, each each time he wakes up, things improve, whereas she's going backwards in time. Yeah, um, trying yeah, to find the... Find out the, the, the source the key, the of the issue. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, really brilliant idea. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. Well, uh, I've got... Uh, this one's rather interesting, which I'm recommending, um, which is in the non-fiction, which is for a great book for all uh, bibliophiles um, who seem to look love books about books um and it's uh on the list the guardian summer book list and it's called uh portable magic a history of books and their readers by emma smith now the title comes from a description by stephen king who wrote that all books are 
a uniquely portable magic. Yeah, great, great phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Um, I know Emma Smith. She um, is a lecturer. She specialises in Shakespeare at uh, at Oxford. And she's Ah. really very... Very witty and pithy, oh, and right. oh, uh, she really makes difficult things very easy to understand. It's just right. brilliant, really great uh, lecturer. Super, but obviously incapable of hands because um, uh, Smith shows um, as why um, what uh, Stephen King says is true. As she explores the physicality of books through the ages, gathering together a millennium's worth of uh, volumes, big and small, that um, the author has encountered and reveals that as much as their content, it's a book's physical form, it's bookhood, that lends them their distinctive and sometimes dangerous magic. Um, In this homage to tactile pleasure of reading... I think that's so right, because when you go into a bookshop and just breathe in, it's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is, but also, because when you look at books, there are standard sizes, the standard sizes for certain hardback novels um, and and non-fiction, but then there are some that have been produced which are slightly shorter and but dumpier and it is very much as you pick up the book and, and the heft of the book as yes. well so there's, there's, there's more than just the jacket design and the, yes. and, and the, and the print design and it's, it's the feel of the pages the, exactly and, and and the paper and it's great now this one i mean for example um it's this is very interesting from a madame pompadour who insisted on being painted against the backdrop of books that's which i think is an early example of a shelfie um, <laughs> that's brilliant isn't it yes it is <laughs> to Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell's um, rather bizarre but witty defacement of um, book covers in their local library. So really, sorry, so it goes from the, the Diamond Sutra to Ginny Cooper's Riders um, to a book made, can you believe, of rat cheese, slices <laughs> of cheese. Um, and so her book is filled with really interesting historical nuggets which explore the um, unexpected and the unseen consequences of our love affair with books in their entirety not that just their contents but actually their physical yeah uh, composition. i love, love that concept of bookhood yes i can really yeah. really buy into that yeah yes. um, uh, sounds lovely yeah great yeah. book now i've got totally different one non-fiction it's called the expectation effect how your mindset can transform your life by david robson and this has just got some amazing stories in so david robson takes us on a tour of cutting edge research happening right now that suggests that our expectations shape our experience and i think that's um that's absolutely true because Mm. if you think you're going to have a, a an awful time you're absolutely convinced you will have an awful time won't you yes so does worrying about dementia make you more likely to get it what if stress isn't the problem so much as the fear of what it might be doing to us is the problem so of course you can't just think yourself thinner happier or fitter unfortunately Mm. but using this book you can possibly reframe many different facets of your life and in so doing start real physiological change so we're going to listen to this author at the start of the book where he's sort of introducing his concept let's do that now the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven john milton paradise lost our expectations are like the air we breathe they accompany us everywhere yet we are rarely conscious of their presence 
You might assume that your body is resilient or that it is prone to sickness. You might think you are naturally lean and sporty or that you are predisposed to gaining weight. You might believe that the stresses in your life are harming your health and that a night of poor sleep will render you a walking zombie the next day. These assumptions may appear to be inescapable objective truths, but in this book I want to show you how those benefits in themselves are shaping your health and well-being in profound ways, and that learning to reset our expectations about these issues can have truly remarkable effects on our health, happiness and productivity. Don't believe me? Then consider one attention-grabbing study from Harvard University. The participants were hotel cleaners, whose work is often physically intense, yet feels very different from the exercise you might perform at the gym. To change the cleaner's perception of their own fitness, the researchers explained that the amount of energy that was exerted by hoovering the floor, changing beds or moving furniture over the course of a week easily amounts to the level of exercise recommended for good health. One month later, the researchers found that the cleaner's fitness was noticeably improved, with the significant changes in their weight and blood pressure. Quite amazingly, the shift in their beliefs about their bodies and their new expectations of their work have brought about real physiological benefits without any change in lifestyle. We will discover how expectation effects like this can also influence our susceptibility to illness, our ability to maintain a stable body weight, and the short and long-term consequences of stress and insomnia. I think that's such a brilliant thought, isn't it? It is, yes. Um, It is, very much so. So the book brings together sort of fascinating case studies, evidence-based science, and the latest counterintuitive research on how expectations shape us to promote tips on how to apply its insights into our own lives. So there's one story, uh, which is a group of young men from Laos. Uh, There'd been an uprising, and uh, some refugees had moved to America. And they were finding that... um, 20 to 40 year old men were suddenly dying in their sleep from the mm. Laos community <coughs> mm. and um, they couldn't work out, it was sort of like sudden death syndrome mm. sort of thing and they couldn't work out why because they were totally healthy in, in every other mm. way and they found that in their home country um, there is this legend that this sort of bogeyman comes and visits them at night and so they go to shamans or they do rituals mm. in order to protect themselves which right. they weren't able to do in America oh, and gosh. so there was this fear and it was literally it was killing them and in the end it became the biggest cause of death against uh, for this sort of sector of the community um, which was larger than the top five causes of death. So things like Good heart grief. attacks and, you know, cancers and things like that. Just absolutely amazing. And it was, it was ratified as this was, this was the, right. the real problem and acknowledged. It's just a, an incredible story that you could killing you. Yes. So they frighten themselves. They frighten they themselves, frighten themselves to, death. to death. Yeah. Yes. Gosh, that, that's quite sobering. But however, on, on, on going back to a sort of slightly lighter, I'm, I'm rather pleased um, to find that, you know, whirling the vacuum clean around and making your beds is actually yes. going to knock some pounds off your waistline. As so long as you great. believe it will. Uh, right. Well, I have. I will. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to get the vacuum clean out and say, well, that's two pounds off. Yes. <laughs> that's a month's worth of um, yes. going to the gym. <laughs> I think probably it'd be a month's worth of vacuuming if it comes to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, my final recommendation is the margins of, uh, sorry, in the margins on the pleasure of reading and writing by Eleanor Ferranti. Now, in, in a series of essays, the, uh, the famously elusive author of the Neapolitan novels sheds light on her literary developments from her school notebooks onwards. <clears throat> At uh, first, she uh, strives to, uh, for realism, seeking to render her mother's aquamarine ring, for example, as purely and as directly as possible. Eventually, through reading, she comes to understand that the teller is always a distorting mirror, which is very interesting. Now, Ella Ferranti is most famous for her Neapolitan novels, especially the very popular My Brilliant Friend, which was published in 2012. Most unusually, despite being recognised as a novelist on an international scale, Ferranti has kept her identity very much secret since the 1992 publication of her first novel, writing under a pseudonym, which she says in that she can concentrate on writing. Now, speculation as to her true identity has been rife, as you can imagine, and several theories based on information Ferranti has given in interviews, as well as um, analysis drawn from the contents of her novels, have been put forth. So oh. a bit of a mystery. So mm. what do you think? Do you think writing is a, on a, with a pseudonym is a good idea? Well, I suppose it depends. Harm. Well, I suppose it depends what what you use it for. I mean, obviously, well, I suppose it doesn't really matter because if if you're if you're going to be uh, an author and you want to hide your identity and the novels are acclaimed in their own right under your um, the name you've used as a pseudonym, but also it's a handy device um, as J.K. Rowling has uh, uh, done and also Agatha Christie, yes, uh, yes. where they use a pseudonym to to write a completely different type of book or yeah. a different style of book so that they so that they try to divert their uh, their readers who obviously like the certain popular ones which was either the um miss marple or the Hercule Poirot or um the harry potter mm. and move them over to something else that yes. they can because they know that they're capable of writing a different style but they could be hampered or I mean, robert, much robert a- galbraith broke the secret and announced it was jk rowling when book sales weren't as as strong right. as she hoped, uh, right, as she thought it was. Well, that's slightly cheating a bit, I think, really. But <laughs> I've got to so, say, the Robert Grohl Braith books are brilliant. <laughs> uh, right, OK. But interesting, but it's also, I suppose, in many ways, it's a bit like an actor or an actress who don't really want to be typecast. Uh, yes. Not yes. that they use pseudonyms, but it's a similar sort of yeah. thing. So, so yeah. th- they have its uses, I think. Well, it certainly hasn't done Eleanor Ferrante any, any harm no, at all. No, it hasn't. So my last recommendation for our great summer read is, uh, well, it's a bit of gossip, and who doesn't love a bit? To gossip when, oh, you're, indeed, yes. when you're sunning yourself in the uh, on the beach. So I'm recommending The Palace Papers by Tina Brown. This is a rollicking ride through the last few decades of intrigue and scandal in the House of Windsor, based on more than 100 interviews with courtiers and assorted other subjects. Now, even die-hard Republicans will find Brown's pacey prose and juicy insights into the personalities at the heart of this bizarre institution difficult to resist. From the Queen's stoic resolve to the crisis of Meghan and Harry, from the ascendance of Camilla and Kate to the downfall of Andrew, it's full of remarkable inside access. The Palace Papers by Sunday Times best-selling author Tina Brown will change how you understand the royal family. It's eye-poppingly revealing and it's got impeccable sources, sources, historical heft and canny insights 
all served up with a zingy wit. Mm, sounds really good. And just a little point here, I thought, which was something that um, a friend of mine um, uh, at university, we, we decided that we never gossiped. Oh, yes. But we, but we exchanged information. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> And that was my friend. I don't know. He's. Uh, he, uh, I've, I've lost contact with. Him, but that was Ian Ellery. Um, yes, we we exchanged information. We never gossiped. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, books recommended in our summer read section include, if you've got a pencil and want to drop this down, Mick Heron with Bad Actors, published by Baskerville. The Twyford Code, Code by Janice Hallett, published by Viper. Here Goes Nothing by Steve Toltz, published by Scepter. Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Gillian McAllister, published by Michael Joseph. Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers by Emma Smith, published by Alan Lane. The Palace Papers by Tina Brown, published by Century. In the Margins on the Pleasure of Reading and Writing by Eleanor Ferrante, published by Europa Editions. And finally, The Expectation Effect, <laughs> How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life by David Robertson and published by Canongate. Uh, a good round indeed. Now, of the Thames Valley, River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. You are listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, your book programme. And thank you very much for, uh, for listening in today. Now, if you've only just joined us, don't worry. You can listen again to our podcast from whichever service you uh, prefer to use for podcasts. All you've got to do is just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and listen whenever or wherever you like. Or you can make Turning Pages your regular listening, um, which I think you should be doing anyway, by adding a reminder on your phone. Now, we're on every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and tra-la, repeated every Saturday afternoon between 2 and 3 o'clock. Yes, that's a good idea, putting it on your diary. Uh, Right, so the theme this week we'll be talking about is fire. And of course, with a topic such as this, we could have gone non-fiction, fiction. So, Julian, what have you chosen? Well, yes, indeed, we could go all over the place. And I have chosen fiction, or is it fiction? Oh. Yes, I have chosen She by H. Ryder Haggard. And for those listeners who know the story of She, then you'll understand the connection between this book and this week's theme of fire. But for those who will be encountering She for the first time, hang on to your hats and listen on. Well, I've got to say... I've obviously, I know of she, never read it, never knew the connection with fire. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, God, I know it's one's a great one. I, I, I first read it as a boy. It was, in fact, a Longman um, uh, new method uh, book, which I've, in fact, I've got, uh, got nearby. And it's, it really is a great yeah. story. I mean, it really is, you know, great and tingly. Yeah. The only thing yeah. I know is he, um, she who must be obeyed, which is the Rumpole um, description. Yes, well, exactly. Yes, well, that's where it comes from. She who must be obeyed. Yes. So listen on. Now, the full title of the novel is She, A History of Adventure. And was written by H. Ryder Haggard, uh, later to be knighted, and was first published in book form in 1887, after being serialised in the graphic magazine between October 1886 and January 1887. Um, She was an instant success upon uh, publication and has never been out of print since. And here's the opening to the tale of this adventure. I, Ludwig Horace Holly, was sitting one night in my rooms at Cambridge. This was over 20 years ago. 
It was very late at night. Within a week, I had to sit an examination. If I passed it, I would be able to become a teacher in the university. I was then, as I am now, a very friendless man. I am, as I know very well, very ugly. I have an unusually powerful body, but my shape and appearance are such that I have been given the name the baboon. This has made me afraid of all women and not at all eager for the company of my fellow men. In those days when I was studying at Cambridge, I had few friends. Among these very few was a man named Vincey. He, strangely enough, <coughs> was one of the best-looking men I had ever seen. As I sat studying late at night, I heard a knock at my door. It was a very cold night, and I knew that my friend Vincey had been ill, so thinking it might be he, I hurried to open the door. It was Vincey. He almost fell into the room. His face was white and drawn with pain, and a thin stream of blood lay at the corner of his mouth. He was carrying a heavy iron box. He put the box on the table, then fell back into a chair. For some minutes he could not speak. I poured some wine into a glass and gave it to him. He drank it and seemed better, but he was very ill. "'Let me go and get a doctor,' I said. "'No, no, I'm finished, Holly,' he answered. "'I shall not see tomorrow. No doctors can help me. "'Now listen to me carefully, for you will never hear me speak again. "'We have been friends for two years. Tell me what you know about me. "'I know that you are rich, that you have come to the university "'when you are older than most of the men here.' I know that you have been married and that your wife died and that you are the best friend I ever had. Did you know that I have a son? No, I have. He's five years old. His mother died when he was born. Because of that, I have never wished to see him. Holly, I want to make you the boy's guardian. I jumped out of my chair. Me, I cried. Yes, I have been searching for someone to whom I could trust my boy and this. He pointed to the iron box. You are the man, Holly. You are strong and honest and kind. Listen, the boy will be the last of one of the most ancient families in the world. You may laugh at what I'm saying now, but one day it will be proved to you beyond all doubt that I come in a straight line through sixty-five lives from a Greek soldier in the service of Pharaoh, king of ancient Egypt. His name was Kalkratis. Kali, as you know, is a Greek word meaning beautiful, and Kratis means strength. The son of this soldier became a priest of the goddess Isis. This was about 2,000 years ago. Kalkratis, the priest, fell in love with the princess of the family of Pharaoh, and he and the princess left Egypt secretly by ship. Their ship was driven by a storm onto the coast of Africa, and all were killed except Kalkratis and the princess. They were saved by the beautiful white queen of a wild people and lived in her home. You will learn the story from the records in this box and you will learn that this queen murdered Calicrates and that the princess escaped to Greece with her child. The child and his children and their children took the name Vindex, a Latin name meaning the avenger or revenge bringer, the person who will pay back a wrongdoer for the wrong which he has done. The family moved as the years went by from Greece to Rome, from Rome to France, from France to England. The name Vindex became changed into Vinci. The things inside this box were passed from father to son and were given by my father to me, always in the hope that one of them would at some time carry out that revenge, that repayment for the murder done hundreds of years ago by the White Queen in Africa. I tried to do my duty. I tried to find the place described in that box, but I had no success. 
On my way back from Africa, I met my wife, and she died giving birth to my son, Leo. Then I turned back to the work again. I thought, before I go to Africa again, I must learn Arabic. That is why I came here. But now it is too late. I could see that he was right. It was too late. As he lay back in the chair, breathless from having spoken so much, his lips were white. The mark of death was upon his face. At last he spoke again. I ask you to take charge of my son Leo when I am dead. On this paper I have written down the things which I want my son to learn. When he is twenty-five years old, open that box. Let him see and read what is in it and say whether he is willing to carry out the task. Will you do this for me? I have left half my money to you. With it and the pay which you get as a teacher in the university, you will be able to live happily. Will you do this for me? As a dying man, I beg you to do it. How could I refuse? Goodbye, my friend, he said, taking my hand. He went out into the darkness. Was my friend Vincy mad? His story sounded the strangest, maddest thing I had ever heard. But he was my friend, and someone would have to take charge of that five-year-old boy. For a long time I could not sleep for thinking about the whole thing and wondering if I had done right. I seemed to have been asleep only a few minutes when I heard my servant calling me. Why, what is the matter, John? I asked, for his face was white and his eyes showed that something had frightened him. I went to call Mr. Vincey, sir, and there he lay, dead. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Ah, indeed, indeed. Well, Holly goes on to fulfil his promise to Vincey and raises Leo as his guardian. And as Leo turns 25, um, they open the iron box and uh, he and Holly discover the ancient sherd of Aminata. Now, the shard, which is what a shard is, of pottery directs them on their journey, and Holly, Leo, and their servant Job embark for Eastern Africa. Now, very much like Calicratus and the princess, their ship gets into difficulty and is shipwrecked. <coughs> the, pardon me. And the trio, along with the ship's captain Mohammed, make their way on foot into the interior of the country and are captured by the Amahaga people and are told that they are ruled by a fearsome white queen whom they worship as Haya, or she who must be obeyed. Mm. Yeah. And the chief of the tribe, Bilali, takes charge of the trio, introducing them to the ways of his people. And one of the maidens of the tribe, Ustain, takes a shine to Leo, and he a shine to her, and they marry according to the Amahaga customs. Now, things start to move at a pace after Bilali goes to see the queen to report of the white men's arrival. Whilst he's away, some of the tribe warriors become restive and not adverse to a little <laughs> human snack from time to time, decide to seize Muhammad and turn him into a hot pot. Now, and this comes with this this uh, awful um, uh, heated metal um, head thing, but it's a big thing which they heat up red heat and then they put on a man's head and that's... that's oh my goodness. Mm, indeed, yes. Uh, not terribly pleasant. Anyway, in the melee that follow, uh, follows, Holly manages to shoot and kill several of the tribes and, and unfortunately shoots Mohammed too uh, by accident. And in all of this, Leo is gravely wounded and though saved by Ustain, his condition worsens. Now, the party comes under the Queen's protection um, and are taken to the ruins of the ancient city of Kor, which was once the seat of a mighty civilization predating the Egyptians. Now, here we 
we meet Aisha for the first time. Stunningly beautiful, she possesses supernatural powers which include the ability to read minds, to heal wounds and cure illness. However, one of the most valuable gifts is denied her, the ability to see into the future, which is to be her undoing. But above all, she possesses the secret of immortality, telling Holly that she has been living in core for two millennia, awaiting the reincarnated return of her lover, Calicratis, whom she killed in a fit of jealousy. Pardon me. On seeing Leo, Aisha declares him to be the reincarnation of Calicratis and puts Leo under her spell, striking Ustain dead with her magic powers. Uh, So that gets gets that one out of the way. Um, And Aisha reveals that the gift of immortality is to be found in the pillar of fire. So this is the connection with fire. This is the connection, Ah. yes. Fire, yes. And she leads Leo, Holly and Job through the ruins of Kor and the caverns underneath it until they come to the great cavern and the pillar of fire itself now for those who don't know the story heather um uh, she um uh, my advice is to treat yourself to a copy and see why aisha would have benefited from being able to see into the future and now of course as you can well imagine such a story was too good uh, not to be turned into a film and in fact it's been developed for the cinema at least 11 times starting as early as 1899 which was 12 years after publication wow. yeah i even got the hammer film treatment in 1965 uh, employing those two stalwarts of its house of horror franchise peter cushing and christopher lee along with ursula andress as aisha and bernard cribbins uh, <laughs> coming along for a bit of light relief uh, you're gonna sound that sounds fantastic yes it was a yes rather good one (laughs) (laughs) great book choice now when you think of fire and books i immediately go to fahrenheit 451 by Mm -hmm. ray bradbury which of course as you might or might not know is the uh, temperature that uh, paper catches fire that a book oh. uh, burns, which is why it's called that. It's the auto-ignition temperature of paper. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. And uh, Ray Bradbury, of course, is one of the uh, most celebrated of our 20th century American writers. And uh, it's a dystopian classic. I always think of it very similar to The Handmaid's Tale, in mm. terms of, obviously, it's not the same story at all, but it's just very much sort of you can see it happening. And in fact, probably, um, he was inspired by what was happening during the war when the, uh, they were burning books and things. Anyway, Fahrenheit 451, firemen don't put out fires. They start them in order to burn books. So it's a vividly painted society which holds up the appearance of happiness as the highest goal. Now, what that means is a place where trivial information is good and knowledge and ideas are bad. So Fire Captain Beatty explains it this way. He says, give the people contests they can win by remembering the words to more popular songs. Don't give them slippery stuff like philosophy or sociology to tie things up with. That way lies melancholy. And I do know that's a frightening view of how life is at the moment, isn't it? Mm, With all our universities closing their philosophy and English literature Mm. programmes and things. 
Anyway, Guy Montag is a book-burning fireman undergoing a crisis of faith. His wife spends all day with her television family, imploring Montag to work harder so that they can afford a fourth TV wall. Their dull, empty life sharply contrasts with that of his next-door neighbour, Clarissa, a young girl thrilled by ideas in books. And she's more interested in, in what she can see in the world around her than in the mindless chatter of the tube. So when Clarissa disappears mysteriously, Montag has moved to make some changes and starts hiding books in his own home, despite the mechanical hound of the fire department, armed with a lethal hypodermic needle and ready to track down those dissidents who defy society to preserve and read books. Needless to say, his wife turns him in and he must answer the call to burn his secret cache of books. It's a great story. It's really yes. funny. Anyway, let's just <coughs> listen to a little bit of the reading of this. Have reason to suspect attack. Number 11, Elm City, EB. That would be Mrs. Blake, my neighbour, said the woman, reading the initials. All right, men, let's go get them. Next thing, they were up in musty blackness, swinging civil hatchets at doors that were, after all, unlocked, tumbling through like boys or rollick and shout, Hey! fountain of books sprung down upon Montag as he climbed, shuddering up the sheer stairwell. How inconvenient. Always before, it had been like snuffing a candle. The police went first, and adhesive taped the victim's mouth and bandaged them off into their glittering beetle cars, so that when you arrived, you found an empty house. You weren't hurting anyone. You were hurting only things. And since things really couldn't be hurt... Since things felt nothing, and things don't scream or whimper, as this woman might begin to scream and cry out, there was nothing to tease your conscience later. You were simply cleaning up. Janitorial work, essentially. Everything to its proper place, quick with the kerosene. Who's got a match? But now, tonight, someone had slipped. This woman was spoiling the ritual. The men were making too much noise, laughing, joking to cover her terrible, accusing silence below. She made the empty rooms roar with accusation and shake down a fine dust of guilt that was sucking in their nostrils as they plunged about. It was neither cricket nor correct. Montag felt an immense irritation. She shouldn't be here on top of everything. Books bombarded his shoulders, his arms, his upturned face. A book lit almost obediently like a white pigeon in its hands, wings fluttering. In the dim, wavering light, a page hung open and it was like a snowy feather, the words delicately painted thereon. In all the rush and fervour, Montag had only an instant to read a line, but it blazed in his mind for the minute as if stamped there with fiery steel. Time has fallen asleep in the afternoon sunshine. He dropped the book. Immediately, another fell into his arms. Montag, up here! Montag's hand closed like a mouth, crushed the book with wild devotion, with an insanity of mindlessness to his chest. The men above were hurling shovelfuls of magazines into the dusty air. They fell like slaughtered birds, and the woman stood below like a small girl among the bodies. So, horrific image there. So, you'll mm. have to find out what happens when he must answer the call to burn his secret cache of books. Is he caught? Does he escape? What happens? 
it's a great it's a really fabulous book and um ironically his american publisher started censoring the book uh, a few years after it was published uh, and he didn't know and various words have been deleted or swapped for example dam was removed and they even changed a number of incidents for example at one stage someone's cleaning out the fluff in his navel and they mm. decide to change it to cleaning out his ears which is just oh. a bizarre change anyway yes. <laughs> eventually the change was spotted by one of his friends and he told Bradbury and uh, it was not until 1980 did the original version once again become available which is just absolutely shocking um, so Fahrenheit 451 stands alongside Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, as a prophetic account of Western civilization's enslavement by the media, drugs and conformity. Um, Bradbury described himself as a preventer of futures, not a predictor of them, which I think is a really interesting comment. Yeah, yeah, it's a good concept, that, isn't it? It yeah. is, yeah. Um, yeah. But it does depend that we need to read the books first, obviously. Yes, of course, yes. Uh, but his book did predict things. It predicted things like uh, flat panel televisions, and Re- yeah. earbud headphones, and 24-hour banking machines. Um, yeah. yeah, which is just amazing. So this uncanny insight into the portrait of technology that took over 50 years or so to create. Uh, so, so we've got Mr. Bradbury to blame for all those things. <laughs> <laughs> we have indeed, yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, um, it's, a, it's a really great, it's a really good book. Um, and again, it's been made into a film. Um, mm-hmm. As, as yes, that's right. Yes, that's why I thought it was familiar. Yes, I haven't seen the film though. No, no, I no, haven't. I haven't. I haven't. No, no. no. <clears throat> but uh, it must be on one of these these television programs or uh, television stations or something. I'm sure so. Yes. Yeah. And talking about television, you've got a, you've bought a new, yourself a new telly. I have. Yes. I, I yes. My 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 old one, which was which was quite old. Um, I was tuning in to watch um, the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, and it all failed on me. Um, but I managed to keep watching that sympathy. at least on my iPad. Yes. yes. Um, so yes, I did go and treat myself, and it's, it's quite an amazing world. It's it's what they call a smart television, right. and now I can I can. So in fact, actually, I don't have to watch anything on the iPad because it's all there on the on on the television screen. So <clears throat> I've got widescreen television. It's not it's not that massive. It's a bit bigger than the other one. But you can also play music through it. It's already exciting. You know. Yeah, that's the life most of us live in. But there you are. <laughs> well, welcome to today. <laughs> anyway, books we've been recommending today are Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Mill, published by Egmont. Uh, Paddington Bear by Michael Bond, published by HarperCollins. Tess of the Devils by Thomas Hardy, published by Penguin Classics. Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak, published by Vintage Classics. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, published by Penguin Classics. Looking for Trouble by Virginia Cowles, published by Faber and Faber. Um, She by H. Ryder Haggard, published by Penguin Classics. And Fahrenheit five, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, <laughs> Fahrenheit four five one by Ray Bradbury, and that is published by Flamingo. Yes, you better get the uh, the temperature. Yeah, get right. the numbers. Yes. <laughs> that's the key thing. <laughs> yes, yes. There's somebody saying, but you know, why is this book burst into flames sooner than before? It's five four one, not <laughs> <laughs> not what we anticipated. Yeah. <laughs> 
So thank you very much for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. And if you've enjoyed it, do tell your friends and put a reminder on your phone to listen every week. And don't forget, we're always interested in receiving either your recommendations of books to share or suggestions for themes that we mm, could yes. uh, we could uh, we could cover or uh, authors we possibly might want to um, might want to chat to. And yes, exactly. we're always particularly interested in local authors. So if you're in the Thames Valley or environs, we go right down to Southampton now on our Ooh. DAB radio. So uh, yeah, please do get in touch. We'd love to have a chat to you. So Turning Pages is on every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Sunday afternoons, uh, Saturday, Saturday afternoons, Saturday. yes, <laughs> between two and three. And if you want to catch up on our, any of our past programmes that you might have missed, then Turning Pages is available on podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. And don't forget to like our podcast, please. Yes, so indeed. thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is it?